Chapter Four of The Quiet Flame by Eva Capetz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Problems galore. While Mother Mary Ann was in Maui, crises of varied sorts developed at Branch Hospital. Mother had established procedures and as much routine as possible in the short time she had. The sisters were determined that there should be no slackening while she was away, no change in the routine but they had not figured on the difficulties which were deliberately thrown in their way. Mr. Van Giesen and the men he controlled were determined to make life too hard for the nuns to endure. They sneered at the sisters' efforts to humanize the place, and, when possible, turned the patients against them. Mr. Van Giesen never lost an opportunity to show that he was in charge. One day, while the sisters were busy with their patients, he rigged up a call bell. The button to ring it was in his house, the loud bell in the convent. I'll ring when I want you, he explained, and when I do ring you are to come at once. The sisters wondered why he seemed so pleased with the arrangement. They soon found out. They were always available during the day, and if he had ever gone near the patients he would have been bound to see the sisters, but it was always after they had gone exhausted to bed that the summons would come, and it was never for anything important. Sister Crescentia was hollow-eyed. I'm beginning to dread the night, she said. This is just petty persecution. I know it, Sister Bonaventure agreed, but we'll just have to put up with it. He'll probably get tired of his tricks before long. One night the bell rang frantically. It sounds as if there really might be trouble this time. The sisters dressed quickly and hurried out into the night. There was an eerie stillness over everything. Even the tall trees were motionless. The croton bushes, brilliant in the day, loomed dark as if they hid something ominous in their masses. The sisters kept close together as they hurried across the yard. A brilliant tropic moon illumined the open spaces, so they could see where they stepped, but the shadows were darker by contrast, inky pools of threat. Sister Crescentia couldn't help thinking of Mr. Van Giesen's oft-repeated statement that the patients hated white people and would kill them given the chance. She didn't believe it when he said it, and she didn't really believe it now, but just the same she'd be glad when they reached his house. There was no conversation between the two as they hurried through the midnight gloom. Mr. Van Giesen was pacing his office when they reached it, fear and anger on his twitching face. "'Those men,' he burst out as the nuns entered, "'those men are smoking opium. It must stop. We must get them out or they'll be dangerous. We must get them and punish them.' He seemed almost beside himself in fury and terror. "'Where are they?' asked Sister Crescentia gently. "'We will go and see them.' It's not safe, I warn you. I have men guarding them, and— He pointed across the yard, and the sisters nearly laughed aloud at what they saw. The door of the small building for men was shut, and a rope, tied around the doorknob, was being tugged heroically by two of Mr. Van Giesen's policemen. The amusing feature was that there was no need at all for the heroics. No one inside was trying to open the door. The nuns hurried over. Where are the men? asked Sister Crescentia. Inside that house, was the answer. They're no good men. Smoke too much opium. Sister fell into the useful pigeon English of the islanders. Open the door, please, she said. I like see. Oh, no can. Bye-bye, they run too much. They no run, says Sister. Take away rope. Slowly, cautiously, the police slipped off the rope. They plunged hastily aside, as if expecting a mad bull to plunge out. Sister calmly walked inside. "'Now what have you been doing?' she chided. "'You promised me you'd be good.' 
We only smoke a little opium, said one placatingly. We never been killed that fellow, a second reminded her, referring to the hated Mr. Van Giesen. Will you let me have the opium? asked the sister. There was silence for a moment. Yes, you like, we give, said the self-elected spokesman. That other fellow, we never give. We like kill that other fellow. He not good. We promise you fellows, we never kill. We never forget that. A little smile curled the corner of sister's lips. That's good, she said heartily. Now, you promise not smoke more opium and be good. We promise, and those two fellows take away ropes of door. We not go away out this house, because we like you fellows. Thank you, said sister. I know you keep promise. You make promise. Now opium. Silently they handed her three short stumps of pipe. Only a very little opium was in each. Only this? Sister was surprised. That's all. Not smoke too much. You like, you take. Now you be good boys, says sister smiling compassionately at them. I'll see you in the morning. The sisters hurried back to the office to report that they have done, and found Mr. Van Giesen raging. It would almost seem that Sister Crescentia's success had added fresh life to the flame of his anger. They're dangerous men, he growled. Dangerous, I tell you, and they must be punished. I'll see to that. Sister Crescentia tried to calm him. They were seeking a little relief from pain and hunger, she said. They have promised me not to do it again. Promised? Mr. Van Giesen put unlimited scorn and disbelief into the word. They've never broken a promise to me, she insisted. She was aware that such a promise might well have saved Mr. Van Giesen's life. Won't you give them another chance? asked Sister Bonaventure. I said they are to be punished. Mr. Van Giesen fairly spat out the words. Disheartened, the two nuns went back to their quarters to try to sleep for what was left of the night. They felt discouraged and completely helpless. Their assistance was asked for often, but their advice was always ignored. They were unhappy when they learned the next day that the men were in solitary confinement, but they were relieved to see that the people knew that it was Mr. Van Giesen's doing, and that the sisters had tried to excuse the men. Not many nights later the alarm bell rang again. Frenziedly it summoned the sisters, and they answered with all possible speed. Outside Mr. Van Giesen's house a crowd of lepers milled about, some shouting, some weeping, some in numb silence. "'You are all to go back to your own places,' Sister Crescentia barely paused in her mad dash. The crowd melted away like sugar in hot water. They did not seem to go. They were just gone. Inside the building they found the director shaken, battered, his clothes in disarray. "'They were trying to kill me,' he gasped. "'They nearly killed me.' He took a deep, shuddering breath. Nine burly lepers burst in and shouted that my end had come. It seemed as if they were going to pull me to pieces.' They tugged at my hair and my beard, and hauled me about by the arm. They were going to kill me and throw my body in the ocean. He paused for a moment, trembling with fright. Several deep breaths helped him get control again. They would have done it, too, except for you sisters. They quieted down quickly enough when you came. Again he seemed almost to resent the nun's ability to manage the lepers. Then vindictiveness took over. They'll regret this night. They'll suffer for it. His snarling voice seemed to have in it much of what had been so disturbing in the mob's yells earlier. The next morning the two sisters went first to the bishop and then to Mr. Gibson to report the affair. "'You understand,' each man made clear, "'that the would-be murderers must be punished.' 
Yes, we understand that, the nuns agreed. But the incident would not have happened in the first place if there was not so much injustice shown. The patients should be treated like sick people, not criminals, or they will all become criminals. If we bring Mother Mary Ann back, the bishop was thinking aloud. Mr. Van Giesen will still be in charge, said Sister Bonaventure. Yes, Sister Crescentia said, but Mother does have a little influence with him. Not much, to be sure, but some. He punishes too much, Sister Bonaventure burst out. I have seen four or five men crowded into a dark cell not more than four feet by four. No one could lie down, of course, not even sit, and they were kept there days at a time for slight infractions of rule. Mr. Gibson frowned. We can't have that. He was evidently angered. When Mother Mary Ann returns, we will make it plain that no prisoner is to be punished without previous consultation with her. Mr. Van Giesen will not like that, said Sister Crescentia. Then we will find a place somewhere else for him, said Mr. Gibson firmly. So Mother received the letter recalling her from Maui. She found things somewhat easier to manage with Mr. Van Giesen gone. True, there were still the surly ones, the patients who disliked the nuns, but their number lessened quickly when they realized that Mother and the sisters really loved them and wanted only their good. At Mother's suggestion, Sister Crescentia dressed sores out under the trees, except on stormy days. It was good for both nurse and patients to be out of the evil-smelling room which had been used. Sister Lodovica was in charge of the housekeeping. Without criticizing or hurting feelings, she had to introduce completely new ideas. In the patient's dining room, for example, it was up to her to end old methods of table-clearing after meals. She could not quite agree that the good way was for a barefoot girl to climb on the table, dump a bucket of water, and then with a wildly flailing broom, shoot dirty water, bread-crust, fish-bones, to all corners of the room, where they stayed drawing millions of flies. With more authority now, Mother Mary Ann could drive ahead. She had to oversee the nursing. She planned for the religious training of Catholics, or of any patients who wished to become Catholics. Some of the children were almost wild, and they had to be taught gently, but firmly, to conform, as far as possible, with accepted norms of living. Mother managed in her quiet way to be everywhere at once, to share in all the work. In August 1884, about seven months after the sisters had arrived on the island, Mother wrote a letter to Syracuse. "'You have every reason to think that I am willfully neglecting you,' she said, "'but I beg to assure you that such is not the case, that only the want of time is the cause of my silence. We have constantly two hundred sick here, afflicted with a horrible disease. We are in a strange country among strange people, and are responsible to the government for our transactions.' The government did want to help, to give it credit, but at the time little was known about leprosy. New drugs and methods of treatment were tried out, but it was not always easy to get doctors willing to expose themselves. So the five sisters were to an extent on their own in caring for the two hundred patients. Even so, they found time to plan treats for their charges. When Christmas came, each received a little gift. The dining room was decorated, and the girls were brilliant in the brown dresses trimmed with turkey red, which had been made for every one of them. By degrees, the nuns managed to introduce at least rudimentary cleanliness in buildings and grounds. The patients began to realize that keeping things clean discouraged flies, and that it was pleasant to be without those pests. Personal cleanliness was harder to achieve. The girls especially had an overwhelming opposition to soap and water for themselves and their clothing. With brushes and combs they wanted no traffic at all. 
Ellen Davis was a case in point. Ten years old, but tiny for her age, she gave the effect of never having been washed. From the top of her head to the soles of her feet, she was cased in dirt like a snail in its shell. Sister was at her wit's end, trying to think of a way to get the child clean. Suddenly she had an inspiration. Ellen, she said, if you stay in your bath a long time this afternoon and scrub yourself well, something nice might happen. Will I come out white? asked Ellen eagerly. Let's find out, shall we? The water was hot, the soap plentiful, and the scrubbing was almost violent. For the first time, Ellen seemed really interested in a project. She was delighted when her hitherto concealed skin came out of its accumulated covering, pale golden in tone. My hair, sister, what about my hair? Scrub that, too, then after you get dressed, we'll see. The hair, which had been a solid cap, fell free and silky. Her eyes flashed and danced in joy at her new-found beauty. Instead of wiggling and pulling away, she stood quite still as Sister put a clean dress on her. "'Now go show yourself to Mother,' said Sister. "'Ask her if you're not nice.' Ellen bounded away and rushed to Mother's office. "'See me?' she bubbled. "'Am I not nice?' "'You're very nice, but who are you?' Mother's eyes twinkled. "'You're not Ellen Davis. I know. You're my little snowdrop.' From that time on, Ellen insisted on being called Snowdrop, and for a long time she was clean. Even when playing some of the games Mother introduced, she was careful of herself and her clothes. But if Mother could deal in love with the children, the hidden steel of her nature was called on with some of the men. The giant Tom Birch, who had been a sycophant of Mr. Van Giesen, and who still ruled many of the patients because of his bullying ways, this ugly customer gave Mother many tense times. But secure in her knowledge that she was right, serene in her faith, Mother faced him down and won her point. In Syracuse, two distinct feelings were growing among the community. A desire to go to the islands and share in the wonderful work being done, and a somewhat impatient wonder as to when Mother Mary Ann, their provincial, was coming back to them. In February 1885, the bishop in Honolulu decided that the matter must be settled. He wrote to Father Leeson in Syracuse that he felt that Mother should be left where she was. She had every qualification for the work she was doing, he pointed out, and she enjoys the highest esteem and full confidence of all she has to deal with. The following August she was relieved of her duties as provincial. She was delighted to be free to work with undivided mind, but there was a little shiver of distress along with her satisfaction. Mother had never thought of herself in the role of a pioneer woman, yet that was the part in which life had cast her. She was to break ground in the care of sufferers from a misunderstood disease. The welfare of hundreds, even thousands, of sick people depended on her wisdom and judgment. Her sisters, too, must have her undeviating care. End of chapter 4